Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 78 of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian, Elite Inquisitor Gottlieb. And this is our first official bonus episode. So thanks to all the patrons that helped make this happen, help us reach our stretch goal and everything. And I think our plan for this tentatively going forward is these episodes are going to be a little bit different than our normal fare. You're probably not going to hear very much of just like what is going on in the week to week happenings and everything. This is mostly just going to be like some interviews or uh, some level up episodes. And uh, today we have an interview, which I guess is what the elite inquisitor stands for. Yeah. I'm ready to ask the most pointed, difficult, searing questions I can directed at our guest today. I have every faith though, that he'll respond with some top notch answers. He's going to be a good interview for sure. And a great way to kick off our new endeavor, our new kind of bonus episodes where we get to do something a little different, a little crazy every week, or excuse me, every month. And it should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. Dude, this is not fair though. You're you're a lawyer and you're going to put our guest on the stand. It's not cool. Well, listen, me and our guests go back a long time. We have been competing with one another uh, for years, friendly rivals for sure. Although, is it a rivalry if someone never beats you? I don't, I don't even know if I actually want to call him my rival at this point because he's got to beat me before I can I can put him on that level, right? Well, at, at this point, I think uh, our guest, Kevin Jones, needs to step up and say something because this is too much. Daddy? <laughs> that, that's what you come back with after I just try and sear you, you come back with the daddy, that's it? I'll just make my presence known. But yes, it's, uh, it's great to be a part of this. Uh, thank you guys for having me. And one of these days, Brian, one of these days I will get you. I'm, I'm sure it's coming. How many times have we played now? It has to be like seven, eight matches that we've had against each other, right? It's some ridiculous statistic, like 0-7 against you or something like that. I still think about at the weirdest times, like this one turn I had against you where like, <laughs> I think you attacked me with uh, whatever it was. Like, I think it was Mardu Vehicles versus a blue-white flash deck. I tried to selfless spirit my guys in combat and you disintegrationed in response and like, I just thought about it for the rest of my life. It was like the finals of a PPDQ. So like, not even the most important thing, but obviously, you know, I was there, so I wanted to win and everything, but yeah, you got me. I remember the match. I remember it well. And it was the finals of a PPTQ for sure. Dude, Kevin Jones, welcome. Thank you guys. Thank you. You are our third guest lifetime in 78 episodes, but also our first only returning guest. So I'm, I'm your third guest, but the first guess was me and this and the third guess was me yeah or there's another person no it was you twice in bbd yeah yeah that's what i thought i'm a i'm a dedicated fan devoted fan whatever you want to call it as well as being an occasional guest yeah every time i run into you at a tournament you always want to talk about the last episode of the game podcast definitely in the top tier of our fans you always have a lot of support and a lot of kind things to say about what we're doing so props to you for supporting us all this time i guess you're like you're part of the reason why we have this bonus episode right now for sure Mm -hmm. i am a patron i am giving you guys you know i'm helping you guys so in a weird way i'm 
paying to <laughs> be on the show. <laughs> Jay- Jerry joked, he's like, you'd have to pay me to hang out with you. And I was like, well, I literally did. So yeah, I guess you are <laughs> firm, but fair, firm, but fair. So Kevin, dude, things, things seem to be going pretty well for you, right? Like you, you won a Grand Prix not too long ago. You recently got engaged. Uh, you just played a pro tour last weekend. And I think no matter like how you feel about the whole situation, like this is, this is something that I would hope that you chalk up as something that is in the good column. Yeah, I mean it's it's a success for sure. I will not soon forget the different lines I could have taken, particularly against Marcio and even against um, Kazuyuki Takamura. I hope I didn't mess that up. I think that's how you say it. But yeah, like it's a good result. If if I walked in on you know on Thursday afternoon for registration and they were like, uh, "You can go home. You're getting 17th," I would be like, "All right, cool." You, you would have been like, daddy, and then just like turned around. Yeah, and- I'd like, you better give me my draft set, but I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know? I draft any good rares at least? Oh, I, I got a card in my second draft, and I was like, this is insurance in case we bomb out. This Ooh. is insurance. So so what does one do with a Pro Tour stamped Karn Cyanoversa? Are you going to just sell that, or are you going to keep it forever? I sold it. I, I don't know if I should have sold it, but I sold it. Damn, dude. Heartless. Yeah. I'm a man of value in a lot of ways. So I just needed to, I was like, ah, oh, let's, let's value. This could turn into like some food. I think we had loose plans to go get some Bonchon chicken. I don't know if you know what that is, but uh, we had some plans bonchon. to do that. Bonchon is excellent. Yeah, Agreed. we were going to do that. I was like, all right, well, thank you. Pro tour day two draft for paying for my Bonchon. <laughs> all right, man. Fair enough. Well, set the stage for this pro tour, like coming in, uh, like, I guess, how how did you qualify? Who were you working with? What were your expectations, if any? You know, just like tell us what was going on in the daddy's head. So because I won GP Montreal like just over a year ago now, I uh, had a bunch of points between that and the World Cup. And I had some solid results in GP Vegas and was able to add, like I went 10-5 and 12-3 at the two Vegas GPs last year. And I managed to get silver by one point at Vegas, which was like the second to last night, uh, event of the, of the, um, season. So I deferred my invite from the GP, which would have qualified me for Kyoto, but like the daddy's not really about airplanes, uh, that, that make you go over a bunch of oceans for like 15 hours or whatever. So I deferred that to Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is way less time on an airplane and sounds great to me. Um, so I went to that pro tour, didn't do well, but I had a silver invite left and I skipped Spain and I used it for this one. And I decided that I wanted to make sure that I did it right this time. So I ended up with a, uh, a couple guys I tested with and we got a hotel, a series of hotel rooms, like for the, a few days before from like Monday or whatever. And I, I worked with Jack Kiefer, Andrew Tenjum, Ely Cassis and Noah Walker. And then Oliver too was also there playing games with us as well. Okay. So like a lot of the card hoarder people. Yeah, mostly card hoarder guys. We didn't all play the same deck, though, so that was interesting. But I guess we're going to get to that in a little while, right? Yeah, man. I, so do you want to talk at all about Albuquerque? I know that, like, we kind of had a moment there, and I'm not sure how much, like, that factors into your mindset coming into this tournament because I know that, you know, you really wanted to make day two of that tournament. And, you know, just talk about that a little bit, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So 
I remember walking up to you before the last round of, of PT Ixalan in Albuquerque, and I said, and you were talking to Majors, and I said, well, shout out to Majors, previous host of the show, obviously, and I said, uh, are you guys talking about something important and personal? And you said, kinda. And I said, I need help. I was 3-1. <laughs> I was 3-1, and now I'm 3-4. I'm losing my mind. I don't know how to get my head back on. I don't know what to do. And do you remember what you told me? Just, I don't know, that like these tournaments, that like I, I don't know how much of this I mentioned specifically, I guess, but like my whole feelings on the Pro Tour is that there's only four of them a year and they place like an extraordinarily high importance on how you finish in those tournaments to determine your pro level and everything. And everything you do for the rest of the year, like could be right and be going pretty well. And you like bomb out of a couple of pro tours and it's like, you know, your silver or bronze or whatever. And it's, it just kind of sucks. So it's like, you can't put, you can't really be thinking about like how much the tournament matters because it's, it's just going to get to you, you know? Yeah. Well, that's exactly what you said. You said like, you can't put stock into this both as far as like your career goes and emotionally because you're just setting yourself up for like disaster. It's so high variance that like you can't allow this to attach like value to your well-being or you're like basically self-fulfilling a prophecy of like being upset and being unhappy or whatever. And you said just like play around. If you win, cool. If you lose, well, whatever. And then you just go from there. And I lost, but like I was only mad for like, you know, six hours instead of like – the last time I like lost playing for day two of Pro Tour, I was mad for like six months. <laughs> Damn. Well, I mean, I, hopefully, you know, that actually helped. But like, how did that affect your mindset coming into this next tournament? I mean, you got to wait for like six months or so, right? Before playing yeah. the next PT? My goal was really just to make day two. I guess the soft goal was to requalify for the next Pro Tour so that I was able to, you know, play three in a year, which I think is pretty good for someone who basically just played SCG Opens for the longest time. I wanted to try to play a bunch of Pro Tours in a year, as I think that's kind of a unofficial benchmark for, like, being moderately successful in Magic. And uh, so I wanted to play the last Pro Tour of the year. But I wanted to make day two of this one first because I had never made day two before and this was my fourth Pro Tour. So I wanted to get to four wins as soon as possible so that my mindset would have been clear and I would be able to, you know, focus on the matches instead of like, you know, getting the monkey off the back or what have you. But why though? Why Why even, why even focus? Why even think about how, you know, like you want to make day two of these tournaments? I'm certainly coming from a privileged position where... I have played in a bunch of pro tours and, you know, some have gone very well, but like the majority of them have gone pretty poorly for me. But like, I don't think at any point it was like, oh, you know, like I have to make day two or I have to go X and six or X and five or whatever. Like, I I just don't think it's particularly helpful to like put those benchmarks on yourself because, you know, if you do worse than that, you're going to just be disappointed, man. So I think a way to attack this is to say that we talk a lot. I talk a lot about whether it's um, when I'm writing magic articles or I actually started writing articles about football for my friend's website too, where you're, you know, talking about the value of players for fantasy sports and all sorts of stuff like that. I talk about opportunity costs a lot. Like what, what is the cost that you're giving up to have a certain thing? And I think that, you know, spending so much time away from my family, away from my fiance, uh, all that type of thing. And then like being now I'm 30 years old and like, all the other things I could have done seeing seeing classmates, you know, with certain jobs or whatever and wondering like, 
if all this time I've invested in magic hasn't, you know, like actualized itself or, you know, evolved into something real, then like, have I wasted time or whatever? So like, I think that the pro tour is the one way to like kind of realize success. And if you do well at the pro tour, it kind of makes things worth it. But again, I do understand that like we're in a spot where like we can prepare perfectly, play well, and like just bomb out of the pro tour and there's nothing you can do about it. So it's a weird thing to put stock in regardless. But at the same time, I knew that if I did well and was able to prove to everyone and especially myself that like I could hack it on the biggest stage, then like I would kind of feel like this whole magic endeavor is fruitful, I guess. So I, I have I have to hop in here because obviously Jerry mentioned there is like some privilege to to his situation where he's played a ton of pro tours, but you and I our experience lines up very closely in terms of the amount of kind of success we've had on the pro tour and just our general experiences. And the question I have to ask you is anything really different now that you have this good pro tour finish? Like, do you think? Do you think Jerry and I respect you more now? Like we we were only going to consider having you on this show if you were capable of getting that kind of finish? Or do you think like people look at you differently? Is your life fundamentally different? I mean, I know you have some more cash in your pocket. You get to play another pro tour, but you're the same person you were, you know, three days ago now. And you're talking a lot about all the things you've given up. And I get that. I understand considering the opportunity cost of participating in the lifestyle that you're participating in. But I think when you're analyzing that, you have a ton of experiences that the peers you're looking at, the people who have whatever jobs that you're envious of or get to spend more time you know, around their home base, you have a set of experiences which completely dwarfs their experiences. You've seen more of the country. You have fans. I mean, how many people get to legitimately say they have fans? There's not many people in, <laughs> in, in this world who get to say, oh, those are my fans. But you're in a position where you get to say that. So while you're absolutely right, your life has taken a different course. I guess my question is kind of twofold. One, are you happy with the course you've taken? Like, are, are you okay with living your life this way? And two, do you really believe that <laughs> like now that you've achieved this this thing, you've gotten this day to, you've had some taste of pro source pro tour success has your life changed because of it is it going to be different going forward i i think i'm my own harshest critic i guess so with respect to the day two thing yeah i think i needed it from like as far as the way i look at magic i think that it was huge to be able to do that because i'm able to now like kind of feel as if i did prove that i could compete and because i did that like i'm able to approach magic from a more and not, I don't want to say relax in that I'm going to stop working hard. Like it's it's actually like inspired me to work even harder because I, I prepared for this tournament in a hotel room, like testing house style for a couple days on end. And I had results to show for it. And like, it just shows me that like, if I work hard, I can continue to produce good results. And I think part of it was when I, if I had a tournament that I considered a failure, like it would kind of, it would almost like scare me into not preparing because it would allow me to like reconcile with myself failure again. Does that make sense? Like that's a yeah. weird way to look at it. No, no, I understand what you're saying. It's like, oh, if I if I just, you know, go, oh, I was busy or I had work this week or whatever, I didn't prepare, so no big deal. Then like I used to not send out job applications for fear of rejection when I was like younger. I always was like, oh, if I don't if I if I if I don't apply to this job, 
then I can't get rejected and I won't feel like I have nowhere to turn as far as my professional career goes. So that's another weird way to look at things, I guess. But but basically the answer is, no, I'm not a different person. And yes, it did make me feel better about what I'm doing, but I am happy with the way that my life has gone for sure. Like I got to see different parts of the world. I got to see different parts of the country. Like I live in a small upstate New York town, as Brian, I'm sure you understand. You did the yes. same thing. Yes. A lot of people who live in my town live there forever, you know? So, and there's nothing against that. I don't really resent anyone who, who decides to do that. But like I get to have a, a wealth of experiences that are utterly unique with regards to like my peers, the people that live with me. So yeah, it's super cool and I'm super happy with the way my life has gone. But I guess success at a pro tour is like a universal way to quantify what you do that people can look at and understand that you're actually good at what you do. Well, Kevin, my my thing with all this is like, where do you draw the line between what you define as successful and not? And and how do you actually come to that conclusion? Because it's like, you've, you've qualified for pro tours, you've like played against people who are very good and, and beaten them. Like you have shown that you can play on their level. You won a Grand Prix. You've like won opens, played in the Players' Championship. Like why is it the Pro Tour that matters so much? Because the Pro Tour is the one that like – and I wrote about this when I won the Grand Prix. So when I was playing SCG Opens, I was pretty happy about it. I, I liked my life. I got to see the country and I you know got to make a name for myself and stuff like that. But there's like doubters, right? I don't know if these are like the Twitch chat doubters or what you want to call them, but there's like people somewhere that are saying like, oh, that guy's only good at SCG Opens or like, no doubt he 3-5'd that Pro Tour. Like the format wasn't week one con standard. This guy has no has no tricks left up his sleeve or whatever, you know? So like there is a subtle, like there's some subtle shade being thrown on people who like played mainly SCG Opens. I guess I kind of have that chip on my shoulder and it's like the Pro Tour will be like, hey, I told you guys I could do it. Like, keep doubting me, and I'm just going to keep, like, working hard and trying to crush it and prove people wrong. It happens that, like, I manufacture the existence of these people to make me, like, have an edge and, like, a competitive edge and work harder. Well, like, A, I don't think I'm totally manufacturing them, and B, like, is that really the worst way to motivate yourself? Eh, I mean, I, I think you could choose a more positive method, but... Agreed. That was that was going to be my response as well. I, I mean, look, I'm not here to try and convert you to a different way of thinking. It just sounds like you're you're creating a lot of doubters for yourself. Even if they are real, you're acknowledging doubters of yourself. And I just don't think that's positive because like I said, I've always thought of you as an excellent magic player. To see you have this success doesn't surprise me whatsoever. Same. My opinion of you hasn't changed. I think you're the same player you were, you know, two weeks ago. And I think anyone in the know basically is going to fall on that same camp. And so if this is what you have to do to motivate yourself, it's always good to have motivations. But I think you could be motivating yourself from a more positive place and just saying, like, look at what I've done. You know, kind of the sky's the limit for me. If I'm able to invest some time in this, I really can compete on the highest level. And having that belief in yourself, I, I mean, it's going to keep you a little bit further distance from the type of kind of catastrophic meltdowns you're discussing, like in Albuquerque. Stuff like that, where you have this belief in yourself is kind of eliminated from the spectrum of things you have to deal with. And it doesn't sound like a psychologically pleasant thing to deal with when you're having those kind of self-doubt issues. You know, it, it doesn't feel great. I, I don't know. Like I said, I, I'm not trying to con convert your worldview. I just 
think you would benefit from coming at it from a more positive angle because there is a lot of positivity around this accomplishment. And there's been a lot of positivity around your magic career prior to this accomplishment as well. This is not a validating event. It's just one of many events that points to you being an excellent magic player. My, my, it's validating for me mainly because my pro tour career, if you could even call it that thus far, has been like heartbreaking in every way possible. It was like start 4-0 at my first pro tour when 5-3 was the cut, then like lose a heartbreaking close match, then like 0-3 my draft despite thinking my deck was great, and then like be miserable for the rest of the weekend. Then like the next one was like an up and down tournament, but I managed to work my way to three and three, and then I lost two in a row to not make day two, including like punting when my opponent was functionally dead on board in the last round. And the pro tour after that was Albuquerque where I went three, one to three, five. So like I have had this thing like dangled in front of me, like the carrot on the string for so long. And I've tried to remain like objective and be like, Oh, like these tournaments are hard. It's okay, man. But like all my like self assuaging or assaging, however you say that word has like, rang hollow after a certain point when like you're watching people just day two over and over and you just don't. So like at some point I had to be like, dude, you got to get it done. You just got to get it done. And then we can worry about all the like unhealthy thought processes after that, but you got to get it done so that you can prove to yourself that you can do it. Well, I I do feel, I I understand what you're saying, but I do feel like some amount of this is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like you are very clearly like breaking your tournaments up into segments. It's like, Oh, I started three and one, I started four and oh, and those are not moments to be celebrated. But I know that like you're reflecting after every round and just being like, Oh, you know, like maybe this is the time or whatever. And I I think that you do just have to focus more on taking it one match at a time. But honestly, I do think that now that you've, you've gotten 17th, you uh, went Oh, one and one when you needed three match points in the last two rounds to make the top eight, like, Maybe you have this monkey off your back and maybe now you can actually like play in these tournaments without thinking about, you know, like, oh, I just really want to make day two or whatever. And as soon as you cross a threshold, like the first time you top eight an open or like top eight a GP or whatever, like it gets easier to do that the next time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't get nervous at GPs. I don't get nervous at opens or invitationals. I don't get nervous at all at those tournaments. I played Owen at nine one one. He was uh, he was nine and two or ten one, whatever he was. I think he was nine and two, and I was nine one one, and my hands were shaking. I was nervous as can be. Yeah, man. And I don't really know why. And I like messed up and like didn't think straight. And it's not like Owen is like he's intimidating for sure, but he's just a great magic player. He's someone who like I'm friendly with and was on a team with at one point, and like I look up to and stuff. But like, dude, I was just the spotlight got to me. And I, like, shook it off. I shook it off, like, yes and no. Like, I tightened up. My next match went much better. I won. I play, I thought I played pretty well. Uh, the match after that, I also won uh, against Greg Orange. It was a camera match. I thought I played pretty well there, too, for the most part. Some small things notwithstanding. And my last two matches, like, I was exhausted. And I just, I just had to take better lines. And I didn't. And, like, yeah, whatever. But at the same time, like, I got interviewed by BDM. With like two rounds to go and I needed one win. And he was like, how do you feel about being on the cusp of top eight? And I'm like, dude, I just made day two. I'm so happy. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone's like, what is this guy talking about? And I'm like, no, you don't get it. Like my goal is my goal. Like that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's something to be said for that too. Just like, well, you, you set this goal and you, you far outreached it, man. Like 
you you absolutely killed it. You were basically dominating the tournament for like a very very long time. And yeah, you you asked me how my my second draft went, and I was like, oh, I I three owed again, and you were like, you're free rolling, man. And then yeah. you like winked at me, and I was like, yeah, free rolling, just keep doing it. And I felt like I was free rolling. The pre- the pressure got to me like a little bit when I was playing Marcio, and they're like, oh, you need to play a little faster, and like he was visibly like e- expressing frustration with like my pace of play and stuff like that. Like I said to you earlier off, off the record, I said like, Oh, I could have made a play that is probably pretty strong. And it wasn't like I missed it. I saw it, but instead I like made a convoluted play that might've been better 20% of the time, three and a half turns later. And that's just who I am. Like those are the plays that I make. (laughs) So that's what happened. And like my like weird tendency to like try to make unorthodox plays kind of just reared its head at the most inopportune time. And you know, it is, it is what it is, but like I said, a success, and I'm happy, man. I'm happy I did well. I feel good about it. Dude, I'm, I'm glad to hear it, and I, I look forward to seeing what you can do from here on out, too. Like I, I think it's going to be pretty interesting to see what your mindset is like going into these tournaments now, and like the next time that you're 9-2 and two or whatever playing against Owen on camera, like are you going to be used to it, you know? Like, you, you've now you've now done this before. Like you've played on camera, you've played in that feature match area, and I think the reason why people get nervous is because you're out of your element. It's like your first time doing something like that, and it's weird to you. Like you just become uncomfortable. Yeah, it was like I was just like so nervous about all of the things. Like I was also like, oh, make sure you draw your cards carefully so you don't like accidentally peek at the top one, call a judge over, and then have to like deal with that and get a warning for that. Make sure you don't like you know. Make sure you draw two cards from Champion of Wits and not three and like all these things that like I would just be doing on autopilot in any other tournament. But I'm like mindful of like the audience and the implications of the event and like making sure that my technical play is like good and stuff. Like I forgot to I forgot to activate like an end of turn blood fast because like my hand started to touch my lands and I was like, oh, well, I don't know if I untapped or not, but I don't want to like fight that fight. So I'll just like draw my card, you know? <laughs> It just, it just definitely got to me like I was pretty pretty out of it as far as that goes. But I also like had some moments where I thought I played great. And like everyone who watched me was like, hey, man, you played amazing. My mom was like, oh, this is the best thing ever. You're crushing all these pros. But like I, I told my mom I made day two on, on Friday night and she responded with verbatim. I heard Owen is there. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, yeah, mom, he he goes to everything. He's at the tournament. Yep. Similarly, when I I remember when I was playing for top eight at Pro Tour Origins, I texted my parents who don't really care about magic or or maybe even me all that much, but that's besides the point. And I was like, hey, I don't know if you're interested, but I'm about to play for a top eight at this Pro Tour. And the response I got back was, is the butt crack guy going to take your picture? <laughs> that, was, that was my parents' response to me playing for a top eight. So it's, it's good that you at least got some response from them that was a little bit more active than that. But the thing I, I'm, I've been dying to ask you about, now you and I share a common experience. And Jerry, I don't know if this is something you've really gone through or not. No, I, I, I've won all my winning ends at Pro Tour somehow. Okay, must, must be nice. Anyway, let's leave Jerry out of this conversation. <laughs> he doesn't get what we're going through. But... You and I now both share the experience of being in a absolutely dominant position at a pro tour and missing a top eight. And again, I discussed previously how we're kind of 
there's a lot of similarities between what we've achieved in our magic careers. And I now carry around with me this feeling like I may never have this chance again. And you talked about thinking back over your matches. I still think back over the matches that I played that could have potentially gotten me a top eight at a pro tour. So how are you coping with this experience? Do you have some kind of like sadness that you're worried you may not be able to shake? Um, Or are you just like, no, this is a motivator. I'm going to get back here and I'm going to have this opportunity again. I think about the way my voice sounded when Marcio played Glorybringer and killed me. And like me just going, yep, just echoes in my mind, like all the time. But also like, I think about like, the physical actions of like pointing at rekindling Phoenix with never to return and then exiling it with the scarab God. And then thinking about like what his face is going to look like when he untaps and like shakes my hand, but I just did something else instead and lost, but I'm going to think about it for a while, but like, I don't want to think about how I might not get back there because it didn't feel like unbelievably lucky for me to get here in the first place. I, I mean, I definitely ran, pretty nicely. Like I drew some fortunate cards when I needed them. And like, I had an opponent who played considerably better than I did, who just like needed to rip a land for Ixlon's binding to get my Scarab God and like missed it. And then blood fasted and missed it like multiple turns in a row. And the Scarab God just killed him or whatever. I also felt like I figured out what colors were open when I six owed limited. And like, I liked blue. So it helped that blue was good. I do recognize that like 17th at a pro tour is good enough that like I could have an entire career in magic, like at pro level magic going forward where I'm like, you know, doing well in grand prix, cashing pro tours, like staying on the pro tour for like a considerable amount of time and still never get 17th again, which like kind of haunts me because like it was so easy to do something else in top eight. And I almost did it. I was so close to doing the right thing. But at the last minute, I was like, nah, I think this is a little bit easier and keeps open my mana and just looks a little bit stronger or whatever. And I don't know, it just was wrong, obviously. But uh, I hope it's not as hard to get back there as people think it is, because that would really be unfortunate. I'm ready to get back there, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I do know what you're saying. I absolutely know what you're saying. You're you're dying for another chance and, and to do it again. And I feel you. Uh, it's... I I still wonder if it's just something I'm going to have to think about for the rest of my life. But I I think that Jerry's points of the comfort, this is an experience you have now. You've played the win and in for top eight. You missed that time. But the next time you're in that spot, the lights aren't going to get to you the same way. And I can say even in my very next pro tour, you know, I spent most of the day in the feature match area for that pro tour. And in my next pro tour, when I was called for a feature match, no nerves, no feeling of uncomfortableness, just this is where I belong. I've done it before. I'm ready to do it again. And that kind of attitude is going to pay dividends when you're back in that spot. And I think you're just more likely to convert having had this experience uh, and having been through it before. You're, you're not going to get struck the same way. Those thoughts are going to be able to be pushed to the back of the line. And uh, it's just going to be easier to find success from here. And that's the way you have to look at it. You have to see it as a positive. Otherwise, it kind of eats you up a little bit. So definitely yeah. the right approach going forward. It's a positive and I'm, I'm like, I'm happy and don't get me wrong. Like we're allowed, we're competitors. It's the same thing as sports. It's like, what is the guy's name? It might escape me. I think it's Norwood, but the guy who missed the field goal. I don't know if you guys are football guys, but yeah, Scott, Scott Norwood, Scott Norwood missed the field goal. Like how much do you think live with that guy? Like the guy who called, called the Seahawks through the interception and second and goal from the one in the Super Bowl against the Patriots that happened too. like, that's crazy. But do you think that like, emotionally 
and like as far as like mental health and stuff goes, like I'm okay. It was a great finish. But like as far as magic goes, like after my draw with Marcio, I like walked outside, lit a cigarette, and just screamed at the sky. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very you response. Uh, it's definitely on brand for you. But yeah, I'm like I'm not sitting here like an emotional mess or like right. actually upset as a consequence of it. There's a lot of like, oh, that was so close. It's like almost tangible. But there's also a like, hey, man, you crushed it. You're going back to the next one. You have multiple opportunities in the near future to prove yourself. And like the only thing that can limit you is how hard you work and how hard or how you shape your attitude. And like if I want to check out and be like, oh, I'm just going to punt every win and in. So why not even get there? Then, yeah, I'm probably not going to get back there. But like, I'm just gonna, I'm still gonna try to play one game at a time. I know I won't play every game perfect. It's entirely possible that I get back there and kick it away again. And like, I'm gonna be fine if that happens too. But it's a hard game, man. And there's a lot of variance involved too. So like, you just gotta control as much as you can. And like, you just gotta keep in the moment as much as you can. And like, I don't know, man, I'll be all right. I got a tournament in like three days, dude. Life is great. <laughs> I like your explanation of the car- compartmentalization of it as well. Like, yeah. is it devastating in the magic space? Absolutely. You can't escape that. But you're right in the scheme of things in your life. It's just like this incident. And it's still kind of a great accomplishment if you're able to compartmentalize it and, and not look at it as this damning thing. Definitely a great way to it's approach re- it. It's really hard to let it crush me, right? Because like, if I let yep. it crush me as a person, like I'm coming from a spot where I'm very fortunate to have been able to experience life in the capacity that I have thus far to have a family that supported me, you know, when I was younger and didn't have a job and stuff to have a fiance that is okay with me being away three weekends a month to, to pursue this passion that I have, you know, it's the love of these people and like the support of people around me and my friends and everyone that has permitted me to like be able to be in a spot where the worst problem in my present life is that I did not cast never on rekindling Phoenix. <laughs> That's a great way of looking at you it. You know? Yeah, it stings, but it stings from like a throne in a lot of ways. Like I'm I'm already privileged to be rocking life the way I am and uh doing what I love and having people that support me for it. You know, being able to talk to you guys on the show and everything. I'm super appreciative of what magic has done for me, so I'm not gonna turn my back on it just because I made a mistake under the Pro Tour lights, you know? Right on. Well, you want to circle back a little bit and talk about your deck and like who built it and whether or not this is a good choice. I mean, we have the invitational this weekend. There's, there's also like the RPTQs coming up and everything is, is like black blue, something that you would look at for that also. Like, are you looking to run it back at the envy? Like what's going on? Uh, so real quick about the RPTQs. I think it's smart to main deck siphoner for those of you who are playing RPTQs because you now have like the, Oh, if you switch the doors, you're 66% to like, be right instead of 33 or whatever. But like only one of your three opponents can have Chain Whirler in their deck. So you're 66% to play against a deck that doesn't have Chain Whirler. And yeah, they could still have Ballista or like Fatal Push or whatever, but those things are not nearly as as damaging as Chain Whirler. Chain Whirler against Siphoner is like the worst. I think Blue Black is pretty good for an RPDQ choice as like, if you have three decks registered and not one of them contains Vraska's Contempt, like I think you're leaving a lot of equity on the sidelines. I really like that card in this current metagame. The way they've structured Magic recently to like be so Planeswalker oriented leads me to believe that like 
it's a leak in some capacity not to play Vraska's Contempt in your deck if you're a fair interactive deck. I'm not saying you should Vraska's Contempt out of, like, Modern Storm, but I'm saying you should Vraska's Contempt when you're playing fair magic and trying to, like, kill creatures and play, you know, trump threats in your mid-range or whatever you want to call your deck strategy. I think it's good to play blue-black, but I also think, like, blue-white, mono-green Galta, and red-black or mono-red is fine, too. Blue-black, I guess, goes well with, like, you do blue-black, and then you do, like, I don't know, mono-green, and then whatever, like, uh, red something. I don't know. But blue-black is is fine. As far as the Pro Tour goes, I built it with uh, Ely Cassis. He was responsible for, like, 71 of the cards, and I was responsible for four of them. So that was cool. Whose were better? Uh, Knight of Malice was sweet. Knight of Malice was me. Uh, I wanted, I thought history was really good against us. So I wanted a card that helped combat that. So that Knight of Malice's were sweet. And I possibly incorrectly boarded them in against Red Black. I think he was right against Marcio and wrong against Takamura. But, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there at this point. I agree with that assessment for what it's worth. Yeah. But I think that, uh, the deck was solid. It, the one issue that we had was it was a little bit heavy on fours and a little bit light on twos, which like hamstrings your ability to double spell. And like decks that I play generally are good once they have the capacity to double spell. And I know that Jerry has talked like ad nauseum about the importance of mana efficiency and being able to use your mana well and playing two spells in a turn. And I mean, maybe the old Jerry did. The new Jerry is like attack you with Heart of Kieran or whatever. I think that it's important to um to to be able to, to to cast two spells at once and get back because your deck is the blue black deck is kind of losing for the first couple turns like by default. You have a couple things you can do on turn 2 that are good, but for the most part like you're going to leave open mana, kill some things and like try to stabilize the board until you play the scarab god. The strongest play you have is like Champion, discard, Scarab God, Liliana Death's Majesty, get back Scarab God. That way they have to kill your Planeswalker or your game-winning creature. That's the line. If you have that line, take it. Also, like, get back Chupacabra, kill something. You have a blocker for your Planeswalker. It's, like, another great play. We had Freebooter in the deck at first, but Ely changed it to, like, basically invalidate all their cheap removal. So we ended up with, with the list that I played in the Pro Tour with the main deck, Yeheni's Expertises, which were sweet at what they did, but they kind of had a ceiling to their value because you had a minimal amount of things that you could put into play off of them. But I still think that this fine card as a one-of, or, you know, maybe a sideboard card either way. But yeah, what did you guys think? Did you look at the deck? You know, I put it on Facebook or whatever, but did you guys like the deck? Uh, I didn't actually get to see the deck list, so I'll check right now. I was actually just looking for your guys' names, but neither of you went 6-4 or better. No, I went 5-3-2, and two, and you know how many people I had to Facebook message and go, sorry, I went 5-3-2, and two, it's not posted. <laughs> it's just like the tiltingest thing possible. It's so tilting that I said tiltingest instead of most tilting. <laughs> so, so my opinion on the deck is that I've been very low on blue-black as an archetype kind of throughout this format. You may be familiar with our past work. The Scarab God is unplayable. I don't know if you're, you've oh, seen that episode. It's one of your uh, but, best works. I actually have the original on my wall or whatever. Nice. You know? nice. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, we've gone down that road before. I, I do think, though, if there has been a tournament where Blue Black was correct, this was it. I thought that your configuration in post-board games against the smaller 
red black decks seemed really good. Like when I saw you playing against Marcio, I, obviously you were just one turn away from winning that game. But I really liked your configuration there. It seemed like you had a very clear plan. I think you are, are spot on, and and maybe you can address this through sideboarding. That when you got paired up against bigger black red decks, decks that had the capability to just play this long game. You were missing some of the tools I would have liked to see you have, I think. And it could have just been a sideboarding error, and maybe you were equipped to play that game. Uh, but it seemed like Takamura was able to just be more efficient in the late game than you were. He, he grinded me out. He right. ran me out of resources. And that was certainly a oversight on my part. But, like, I don't know. So, like, it's one isolated event, right? Like, sure, I'm playing sure. against this guy. He's got a main deck for Asuka's Contempt. I don't know that he has multiple. It turned out he only had one. But, like, at the point where, like, I have Scarab God and some other things in play, and he has, like, a PNLR and a token, and he's not conceding, I'm like, what's going on? Is he just, like, making me go through the motions? And then, like, he draws his fourth lens, slams it, and contempts my Scarab God. And I'm like, like, a half a turn before that, I was like, maybe he has Raskus Contempt, because, like, that makes a lot of sense. Or, like, Hour of Glory, or, like, Magma Spray Plus whatever, if he untaps and disintegrates it, like he's still dead, you know, I'm just going to play it again next turn and whatever. But, uh, so I just started to try to press the issue as much in case he had a hard answer. And then he did have, um, Frasca's contempt, but he was too far behind at that point. I got to unearth another champion and whatever. But, um, I do think he, he was able to outgrind me. And like I said, I don't know what he has. He did blood fast me, but that doesn't mean he's not also aggressive. Like blood fast, in an aggressive deck is fine. Like I didn't realize he was going to run me out of cards and kill me with planeswalkers. Like, I don't know how many hearts were in his deck still. I don't know how many copies of things that could be Yehenny's expertise were even still present in his deck as of game two. Like, I feel like he might've just had scroungers and like glory bringers and Hazaret. And like, that's it. I don't even know though. You know, it's possible. I mean, he just looked better equipped to be playing that style of game and, and, it's a hard read. It's difficult to be able to on the fly put your opponent on that kind of strategy, especially when you've been like conditioned. You've played round after round of aggressive red decks and you've noticed over the tournament, everyone is slotting Bomat couriers again and, and they're prepared to come at you early. And all of a sudden this deck changes gears on you and tough to pick out. Also, like if you're going to hedge, it's still right to hedge towards him being sure. aggressive because like. I have cards that are inherently good, like the density of fours plus like Liliana, Scarab God, Contempt. Like I have cards that are good against mid-range threats, just their inherent like design makes them good against mid-range threats. So like I can draw an average hand and like if he's trying to grind me out and I'm just unearthing, you know, four two, four fours and drawing four cards or whatever, like I kind of like my lot in life with regards to that fight. I don't want to die with like a bunch of good cards in my hand. So like mm-hmm. I'm always gonna gonna hedge my deck, even if I know he's slowing down. I'm still gonna hedge my deck so that I can have game against his best draws. Uh, playing for top eight of a pro tour, I don't want to effectively concede to any configuration of his deck, even if it makes me like you know maybe forty six percent in the matchup overall versus like fifty five against the slow version of his deck and thirty five against the fast version. I'd rather be like forty eight overall and just hope that like. I play the best I can and and draw the right configuration because like I don't want to voluntarily board into a a deck that is going to die with six cards in my hand. Like there's just no way you can convince me that that's right. You know? No, I I think you're correct. And this is kind of the 
the vice grip that black red is able to put you in. That's it's why it's so like frustrating. The, yeah. That's it's why it's so the 50% deck now. It's, it's like the Jund of the format where it can adapt and, and present so many different game plans. And basically they're always the one asking you the question, even when they go to their bigger configurations and their, you know, grindier configurations, they still get to be the one who says, you better have an answer for this extremely difficult to deal with thing I'm about to do. Otherwise the game's just going to end. And that, that puts opponents in a tough spot. That's new magic for you. Like that's, that's what new aggressive decks look like. I was talking to a buddy. It was actually a well-known Magic the Gathering professional, Christian Calcano, the other night. And I said that like this black red deck is doing what like the blue decks used to do where they yep. would like, you know, tax your early turns. Like it's like Stoneforge Mystic into sword. And then you deal with it and get buried by Jace the Mind Sculptor. Like that's the same thing as like Heart of Kieran plus Scrappy Scrounger into, you know, Chandra or Karn is the same dynamic. It's like, oh, put the pressure on you, make you spend your first few turns like expending resources to deal with my board. Oh, play a planeswalker, which is answered by the opposite cards that are that answer the rest of my deck, and then bury you in card advantage when you thought I was a beatdown deck. You very much hit on the point of why I think the focus on planeswalkers doesn't lead to the best standard environment. No, it's, and it's that's way why too good. It's way too yeah. good because it's just so easy to build your deck in this way that you like pump fake your opponents into like having a bunch of bad cards in your deck. Like nothing is worse than just dying a slow death with like fatal push cast down or a braid magma spray in your hand when they're just killing you with Chandra, you know? Yeah, totally it, agree. It's so frustrating. But I think that, again, I think that identifying how oppressive, like, this overarching strategy is to current magic makes, like, Kazuyuki Takamura a master. Because he just took, like, and maybe he knew that I'm, and I guess this is going a little deep here, but whatever. I think the audience will probably like it. Like, maybe he knew that it's safer for me to hedge against aggro and, like, it's safer for me to board in all my anti-aggro cards just because there's a chance he, like, has Bomat or Pia or whatever these things Kari's have, has all these things in his deck. Like, maybe he knows that I'm going to hedge in that direction, and he just took them all out and turned into a control deck. But the fact that he's allowed to exploit that axis is, like, fundamentally broken, I think, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's the same, it's the same trick Mardu Vehicles was doing when Mardu yeah. Vehicles was the best deck. And even to some extent, it was kind of like the late stage Sahili decks were doing a lot of the same kind of stuff. Like you're, you're just able to exploit from all these different angles and you know, you can board in all your anti Sahili tech you want, but now I'm able to play this long grindy game with rogue refiners and just able to shift back and forth at will and, and present a ton of different aggressive plans that all demand different answers. I won't apologize for Sahili. That deck was sweet. <laughs> Uh, it was sweet. It was definitely way too good, though. It was and, way and too good. One of the clearest representations of this type of magic uh, that we've seen recently. Yeah, when you would have Sahili in play, play Feldar Guardian, and blink Oath of Nyssa, and your opponent would just get like a sick look on their face. It's just the best <laughs> thing ever. But it's uh, it's not, though, because it's the same thing that we just complained about. So, like, you know. But, yeah, I, I feel you. Where's Jerry? You've been oh. quiet over there, Big Daddy. Yeah, man, I've been letting you guys talk. I do have a question, though, Kevin. How many Cinder Barons did Takamura play in game one? Or, like, how many did you see? In one of the games, I saw, like, three. I think it was game three. He cycled three Canyon Slow and played three Cinder Barons. Yeah, so game three, obviously, that's a little too late to make a decision based off of that or whatever. But, like, even 
game one Vraska's Contempt. Like, what does this person have to do to their mana base to be able to cast Vraska's Contempt? And this is a person who is a Pro Tour champion, uh, kind of under the radar in, in that regard. But, like, you definitely recognize him as a Japanese pro, right? Yeah, I told my friend, I'm like, yo, that guy is so cool. He yeah. had, like, little, like, um, he had, like, shorts that I'm, like, I am a big fan of pattern shorts. And he had the shorts with, like, little puppies on them. I saw them. I think they were in D.C. And I saw them, and I was like, yo, that's Kazuyuki Takamura. He won a pro tour. And he beat another Japanese dude who was playing Mantis Rider Jess guy in the finals. And they were both so cool. And I'm a huge fan of both of them. Nice. And, yeah. and then okay. I was, like, I was I said to someone, like, three rounds into the pro tour, I think it was, like, one of the guys from my local store who qualified. I was, like, Yo, that's that's Takamura. He's a master, and then I'm just playing him for top eight of the Pro Tour, and I'm like, "Well, this is funny," you know, <laughs> you know? dude. Life, yeah. life is funny sometimes, but things like that, where it's like this this person has Vraska's Contempt in their main deck, they have to do weird things to their mana base. They can't like Vraska's Contempt and Bomat Courier aren't necessarily cards that you would play in the same deck, right? Like to me, hundred percent right. Yeah, yeah, that, that would set off alarm bells to me, you know. But it doesn't mean that like. He can't be aggressive enough that I need the cards that are good there. Like, he still has Chain Whirler. He still has Scrounger. And, like, even those two is enough to warrant some number of Yeheni's expertise. I have Spot Removal, so a card like Pia that's an inherent two-for-one is going to be good. Yeah, I don't know, man. It just seems like Yeheni's expertise is very unlikely to catch more than one creature at, at any given time. And... You're already talking about how you're like glutted on fours, like you have a bunch of yeah. Rassus Contempts and Chupacabras, and you're going up to an hour of glory, presumably, you know? So, like, expertise just doesn't seem like it'd be very good. And Fatal Push is a card, like, maybe you play like two of or something just to respect Heart of Kirin. I don't know. I, I never even thought about taking out a push. I took out my Chupacabras and I took out my Gonti, and Gonti would have been fantastic in both of those. Oh, Gonti would have been great. Yeah. Um, but Gonti doesn't line up well against a braid. Owen had lightning strike. So like when I played against all the black red decks, I boarded the same. That ain't right. It ain't right. But I was not able to realize on the fly how different his deck was because game one, he played like chain whirler, Pia, Pia. And doesn't like, matter, man. He played Hazaret and Glorybringer in his deck. Like he played Vraska's contempt. Think about in game that. one. If you, and I should have realized that that meant something. If if you were building red black, what would your mana base look like? You know, Owen had fourteen mountains in his deck. If I was building red black, I would have as many untapped lands as humanly possible. If I was aggressive, right? So but, once I have more tap lands, I'm supposed to realize that that means something. And once I realize it means Vraskets contempt. I'm supposed to also realize the opportunity cost to Vraska's Contempt is no one-drops, so I should board like I'm playing against Jund. Correct. Yep, epiphany moment. You're right. And I figured it out. You you literally watched me figure it out or listened to me figure it out right here, right now. Yep. Which is cool because all the viewers probably figured it out like 20 minutes before that and are just mocking me ruthlessly, no, but I'm okay with that. I don't think so, man. I used to be a court jester. I still kind of am. <laughs> No, man, I, I, I think it's just one of those things where, you know, you're you're just like, oh, like, why isn't he conceding? This is weird. Like, oh, does he have an answer? And then he plays Vraska's Contempt. And, like, the, the thing that, like, you, you are satisfied, basically, because you were thinking that, like, 
you had this big question about like, why is he conceding to Scarab God? And then you figure out the answer to that question, but you weren't like, oh, he has Vraska's contempt. Like, what does that mean? What, what else is going on here? Right. I thought he just was red black with Vraska's contempt. So he wasn't called to Scarab God, but in the post-board games, he played like a litany of weird mid-range things that nobody else had. Like he had multiple blood fasts. He had Karns, which people had, but like it felt like he had it reliably, so I don't know if he had a lot of them or not. He had a Hazaret, he had multiple Glory Ringers. All these things were Marcio too, but he also had multiple Chandras, and then he had Spyglass, which nobody else had. Yeah. He, or nobody else that I saw. He had one Spyglass in his sideboard. Yeah, he played it against me, and it was it was fine, I guess. But um it named Ballista and then caused a weird like turn where I didn't like blow the ballista in response on his 2-2 Glorybringer that I shrank with Deadlands or shrunk with Deadlands. And then like I had to use removal on it later on, I think. I don't really remember what happened, but it was certainly a weird dynamic. And like, I think he thought I was going to pop it in response, but instead I like kept it in my hand or I kept it in play and tried to like attack him with it to race his blood fast. And he just buried me with the card advantage and it didn't even come close to working. But yeah, I don't know. You're right. I'm supposed to figure out what the Vraska's Condemn means, because it's it's not just existing there as, like, some arbitrary thing that corrupts your mana base and, like, informs how you play your first four turns. Right. It does those things, but you're building a 75-card deck because it does those things, and you need to react accordingly, not in spite of that. So, like, the correct thing for him to do is play more mid-range threats because he's not cold to my mid-range threat, so he doesn't have to kill me in the first four turns. Like, the other decks have to go disintegrate your Scarab God when you're, and leave you dead on board because they can't win if you untap with it. He doesn't have that problem. So he doesn't have to play aggressive cards because he's not under the same like uh, modicum of pressure that everyone else is. Right. And yeah, I, I, I think the big thing is just like, it costs BB, you know? Like you have to make concessions to your mana base at, at that point. And as you noted, that generally means more, more ETB tap lands. And then that means fewer one drops, if any. So... Yeah, I, th- I think you could have made a lot of like reasonable conclusions just based off of seeing that one card in his deck. But can't you also argue? I mean, I, I actually don't know if you saw Hazaret in game one. I did. But if you see, you didn't. You said I did. I doom fault. I doom fault him right after he killed my Scarab God, and his hand was Glorybringer, Glorybringer, Hazaret. Hazaret could just as clearly be evidence of the other side of things. And he's just like one off Raska's contempt. But I think along with Glorybringer, Glorybringer, I would probably still go back to the narrative of he's bigger than most decks. You know, he's setting up for something different. But I I do think Hazaret is sending the very opposite signal that Vraska's contempt is like when, when you're including Hazaret in your game one configuration, that speaks to you having a lot of one drops and probably a lot of untapped lands. And, you know, maybe he's just a psycho and he's like, my mana base can support this Vraska's contempt. I, I don't think I'd go as far as to call it a mistake, given the fact that you saw the Hazarets in game one. If you didn't see the Hazaret and just saw the Vraska's contempt, what Jerry's saying makes a lot of sense. But the Hazaret has to pump the brakes at least a little bit. What happened when I saw the Vraska's contempt? was my 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 little voice i know that like jerry or michael jacob and maybe both of them used to talk about the i think michael jacob used to talk about the voice years ago in articles anyway the voice was like oh we're playing for top eight because he's winning all these mirrors because he's a little bit slower and then i proceeded to board like he was the same deck and get dumpstered so like it doesn't make any sense why i thought that because i didn't listen to myself also like i i think the important question is not is he a little bit bigger 
Because when you get contempted, then see Glorybringer, Glorybringer, Hazaret in game one, it's obvious he's a little bigger. I think the question is, is Yeheni's expertise as a two-for-one still worth it, even if he's a little bit bigger? Like, I think that's the question. Is Knight of Malice to, like, block Scrounger every turn and force him to use a removal spell when he has a higher mana cost threat density? Like, are these things, like, not still fine? Maybe I can go under him. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Yeheni's expertise is going to be a two-for-one. I think it's a clean answer to Pia, which is cool and everything, but I think most of the time you're just going to be in a spot where, like, he has, like, a heart, a scrounger, and a planeswalker, and you're just, like, you know, he's got you pinned, basically. I I would rather have Knight of Malice as a way to check scrounger rather than to, like, try and get any expertise him or whatever, because all he's going to be doing is just, like, tapping out, playing threats every turn, basically. For you to spend four mana to answer stuff slowly is just not a great idea. I also managed to, like almost die to Marcio's Siege Gang Commander. So, like, that was in the back of my mind, too. I was like, could he also have, like, a random Siege Gang Commander? And isn't it nice to have, like, a way to mop that up? Yes, but not everyone had Siege Gang, and, like, I would kind of just, like, wait and see, because it's, like, obviously, Marcio and this this Japanese player did not work together, right? Like... No, but, like, if they're both where they are, they're where they are for a reason, and, like... The fact that Evraskus contempted me in game one, I didn't necessarily feel like was enough to justify his record up to this point. So I thought that there might be some more weird things going on. And it turned out that the weird things were he turned into a control deck and just absolutely buried me in card advantage. And that's a great way to do it. Yeah. He also like had this sick play where he didn't attack with his chain whirler. His chain whirler and my champion of wits just like stared at each other with their hands on their hips like across the supermarket aisle for like for like three turns <laughs> and it was like it was like a grocery store standoff like that's on sale and i want it and they're like that's on sale and i want it and you're just like well then and they just they just looked at each other forever and then um it was sweet like he had a lot of discipline but again maybe i should have realized that the reason why he like wasn't attacking with his three three as a red deck was because he had like a better late game and didn't feel the need to push the envelope so like that decision also informed everything too especially his post-board strategy and like if i'm thinking perfectly i should have realized that but like i'm trying to make like the best play every turn and not be like the mocking get balked on twitch and all that stuff and like you know it's a lot man like i said the the lights and the camera won't get me next time but it definitely did this time that's for sure I'm going to take away your access to Twitch account, to, to Twitch chat. I don't, I don't think it's beneficial for you. You just need to shut the Twitch chat, never think about it again. It's not a good place anyway. You're not missing anything by closing it down. I can't watch these matches, man. I've tried. I haven't yet. I, I know it's tough. It might take a while until you're comfortable watching them. I don't know if it's just like I'm going to lose my mind and be like, what were you thinking? Or if it's just like, like, I want to read the chat and see what people say, but I don't really. Don't do it. <laughs> I don't really want to watch myself, like, kick it away. I mean, Takamura's match, I really don't have too much to be ashamed of. Like, yeah, arguably, I could have boarded differently. But, like, that inference is, like, not 100% set in stone. And, like, three three levels above, like, the obvious plays, right? You should have known. You think so? You're, you're, yep. not letting, you're not letting me, like bow out of this one you're not you're not letting no. you're, you're making me take accountability right you, you don't get a pass man you're better than that you shouldn't board against all these red black decks all the same like look at the top eight deck list and like and basically every deck other than that too you know like they're all so different they are the same colors and maybe they have the same strategies but 
Like your deck specifically is about lining up answers against their threats and different people are going to have different threats. You know, it's like one guy plays a Chandra, one guy plays a Steel Leaf Paladin. It's like, yeah, they might have maybe the same game plan or whatever, but you don't board the same way. It's the same thing with these red black decks. Like some people have Hazard, some people have Karn, right? Like it's different. Yeah. And he had both. And right. Marcio had neither, as far as I remember. Marcio seems like a Hazaret dude. I'd be surprised to find that out, but we'll see. Marcio and Marcio and Owen were similarly aggressive, and Takamura was slower than both of them. And the guy I played in the interim, let me see if I don't mess this up, Kazuaki Fujimura, I think is his name. He was more aggressive than everyone. He had Inventor's Apprentice. Hell yeah. His deck seemed way more aggressive. So like... I played against Greg Orange playing blue-white in the interim, but I went, like, aggro-black-red, aggro-black-red, blue-white control, aggro-black-red, and then mid-range black-red. And, like, three rounds in a row have been – or three out of four rounds have been the same thing. It's so hard to realize on the fly what was happening. And you're right. I'm probably still supposed to. But, man, was that, like, the right time for his deck to have that configuration after, like, the pendulum was, like – you are getting very used to, to one drops or whatever, you know? Yeah, no, I, I get it, man. I understand what you're saying. But again, like, don't let the colors blind you. It's like, yes, you're playing against a red-black deck and everyone else is aggro red-black deck. But like, there are enough reasons, especially like going into game three, I think, where you should probably alter things. And uh, surprise, actually, Marcio had seven one drops and no hazards. He had four Phoenix. Oh, game game three, I boarded in duresses. So I was thinking in that capacity somewhat. But I, I think I boarded out one expertise and one other card, and I boarded in duresses. So I was thinking along that line somewhat, but I should have boarded back in like my mid-range threat. Like I, I 100% should have had the Gonti in my deck. I maybe should have had Confiscation Coup in my deck as well. If there was a Glimmer in my 75, it should have been in my deck too. But like I didn't, you know, it was tough. Yeah, it was certainly tough. But I did, I did adjust on the fly a little bit, so I should get like some little semblance of credit back. But I didn't go far enough, and I didn't know why I was doing it. I just was like, I don't want to <laughs> die to blood fast again. Here's a duress, Kevin. Your gas, you know, I think your gas. Like I, I definitely give you a lot of credit just for the finish and and everything. And you are great, but. Everyone has stuff to learn, man. And I think like, you know, yeah, this yeah. this is a good learning moment for you, you know? I think that I actually like a day later uh, or like maybe that night I was like sitting uh, at dinner with like majors and a couple other people. And I was like, should those duresses have been negates? Because uh, duress doesn't counter a top deck card once we're both in the late game. And like, I just said this out loud to nobody in particular. And and that's like kind of the beauty of high level magic is that like you're reevaluating everything constantly and like the people who are doing it on the fly and doing it like in advance are the people who are going to just have that littlest bit of edge. No matter what my configuration is, I'm still probably not beating a bloodfast. To be fair, yeah, but whatever. That's that's neither here nor there. Like, did you yeah. did you present the best weapon with which to fight this dude? No, I did not. I could have had three or four cards different and I would have had a better chance. So you're right. Word. But man, if, if this isn't like awesome content, you know? Yeah, I think so. Like this is cool. 
I'm like not a hundred percent buckling to you guys. And I'm like kind of trying to stand my ground, which I think is better than being <laughs> like, no, you guys are right. Podcast hosts. Like I'll go back to my corner now, you know? <laughs> no, nah, man, obviously like it's, it's your deck. You've been playing the tournament. You're crushing the tournament. I went four and five, you know, like obviously you know what you're doing and what is going on. But at the same time, like I think I can chime in here or there and mm-hmm. you should definitely hold your ground, but no, you're right. It, you're you're the most right about how it's supposed Vraska's contempt in game one has to mean something and its meaning is explicit and not without costs. And that's the most important takeaway from the whole thing. Word. Okay, so to recap, Kevin Jones, you finished seventeenth. Uh you did not lose two winning ins. You went 0 one and one in your two yeah, winning. I drew games. I drew and then lost, yes. So narrowly uh, missed top eight of PT Dominaria. Are you, I guess this qualified you for PT Atlanta. So you are missing the 25th anniversary PT. No, I think it always qualifies you for the next pro tour. You should check on that. Okay. But that's what I was told. It always qualifies you for the next pro tour. Yeah. I, I was told something else by multiple people. And obviously magic is, is kind of in a weird place with like all the pro club level stuff, the cycles and whatnot. So I don't know, but yeah, check on that. It, it, either way, we're going to be seeing you in the future. Uh, you're definitely going to be back under the on, under the lights and everything. And uh, I better find this out because otherwise, like, if I don't top eight the Invitational, I'm going to go to this RPDQ on Sunday, and then we're going to you know get right back on the uh, on that Pro Tour too. So uh, word, I don't know, <laughs> but I'm I'm pretty sure that like even Wizards employees told me they were like it's always the next Pro Tour. Yeah, except for this one because it's a team one. Like, I could see that being oh, okay. the exception. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Because, like, say say you top eight the PT and it's like you're queued for the team one, but you don't have a team, right? Like, that's just silly. They said what happens is you go into a pool of people. That includes, like, silvers and people who have qualified through this way. Yeah, I know. And that you're supposed to make a team out of that pool of people. Right, but say you're, you're Wyatt who won the tournament and maybe doesn't know any of those people. Like, it just seems like a pretty silly system but regardless this whole pt is a silly idea <laughs> just so i could chime in for a second it's been a logistical disaster from the beginning it's it's a nice thing to offer but the implementation was not very successful and there's been way too many questions around all of it and i don't fault either one of you for being confused about the system because it's it's been very indecipherable at many points throughout Dude, i don't fault I don't fault us either. Did Wyatt win the Pro Tour and now can't go to the next Pro Tour? No, I mean... Like, is that really he's, true? He's platinum or whatever, so he's qualified, right? Like, th- that is automatically what's going to happen. Yeah. But, like, maybe someone who makes top eight or whatever, you know. It's... Anyway, let's get off this. We have time We have time to answer yeah, yeah. one question, Kevin. The, the question that I want you to talk about is from Jacob Birch. And he asks, well, kind of comments, but both Brian and Jerry have espoused the virtues of being extremely flexible in play and color preference. On the flip side, you're always very much known for almost always playing blue, especially decks that operate largely at instant speed. How do you balance the virtue of being open with having such strong preferences? And I guess the real thing is, is like, you just don't like, you just don't try at all. Like, why is that? Okay. So yeah, I guess I don't balance the virtue of being open. I do like, th- I still have a wide range of decks I can play, despite, like, blue being, like, a huge restriction for me. So I think it's a confidence thing. Like, I don't think I'm good enough to play uh, decks that don't do what, I, what I'm what i good at, which is probably, you know, somewhat correct and somewhat not, right? Like, I'm probably 
a little bit better at it than I think I am, but at the same time, like, because I'm considered to be good at magic or whatever, but, like, I'm also probably not great at it because other people have been playing, you know, Mardu vehicles forever and or Red X aggro, and I certainly don't know how to navigate those mirrors. Like, that's not a lie, you know? But that said, uh, basically, I can play Control. I can play, like, a Blue X combo deck. I can play, like, a Tempo deck. You know, I can even play, like, Jeskai was like a burn deck splashing a couple counter spells, you know? So, like, I can play a whole different wide range of these decks. So the way I, like, benefit from the virtue of staying open is that, like, I am flexible within my restrictions, I guess. But also, I just have become, like, super invested in and super, like, devoted to the idea of, like, maximizing my ability to do these things. So, like mana efficiency and like uh what turns are you gonna have instant speed cards that you can leave up that will allow you to disguise other instant speed cards it's just like every reason what reason why i love wrath capuchin is like the reasons why i like to play these decks right so like it can sit right there and be like oh i got wrath capuchin so now my glimmers get better and now, like, I could instead play Hieroglyphic Illumination because I can cycle it on turn one, or I can keep it on top of Wrath and Settle. Like, I, all these things are like, I don't stay as open as I should uh, to answer the question. But I do certainly enjoy this type of magic. And if it really came down to it, I would... If, like, I couldn't win with any of these decks, I would have played, like... I probably would have played Black-White in the Pro Tour because Red-Black is a little bit too much for me. But I probably could have gone to the Black-White... Benalia deck and I would have if I had to but yeah do you feel like you're giving up equity by not spending time learning other archetypes like just being familiar with mid-range and just kind of broadening your range a little bit or at the end of the day does it just come down to enjoyment for you and like that gives you much higher equity in life than just in the tournaments I think range is overrated I guess and I think range is overrated because famous Magic the Gathering broadcaster Matthias Hunt told me range is overrated like a year and a half ago when I was playing in an invitational where my decks were Grixis Delver and Modern and Blue White Aggro with four spell callers and four Reflector Mages and Standard. Um, <laughs> and I was like, dude, I just do the same thing every weekend. And he was like, range is overrated. And I was like, all right, I'll just keep doing it. But yeah, I am giving up equity to an extent. But also, I don't think I'm giving up as much equity as you would be led to believe by like seeing that I only play the same decks. Usually these decks are playable in some capacity. And when they're not like I've been playing hollow one in modern lately, that deck's not blue, but flame blade adept is kind of like a tempo card. So I just felt, it felt fun. So I'm trying slowly to broaden the range, but I also play in a lot of tournaments where leaving open untapped mana will cause your opponents to do like incorrect things, you know, grand prix, SCG events and stuff like that. The untapped mana trick is like, way more valuable than it is at Pro Tours, you know? I'm sure if I played, like, the last 10 Pro Tours, I, there would have been one where I played a non-blue deck. I would have just had to. What you just said was very interesting to me and something I hadn't considered before. You're playing decks designed to give you success at the level at which you're playing, you're saying. Yes, I 100% build decks for the perceived range of opponents I'm going to That is face. fascinating. Like, I, the, way that this is, the way that this is most apparent is when all my week one decks have like cards that give you a huge payoff for leaving open four untapped mana. Like the most obvious example is like the band company deck that was like 
four collected companies, Avison with a flip Dutch Dustwatch Recruiter, and Ojatai's Command, all off of your open mana. And then if you didn't cast something, you also had like clues to crack, uh, Dustwatch Recruiters, you know, that you could activate, stuff like that. So it was able to like kind of weave a web where they were screwed if they tapped out and screwed if they didn't. And the first deck I ever played that did that was like Blue Black Fairies. And everybody used to say, oh, you can't play around Mistbind Click and Cryptic Command. And I've just been trying to recreate that like mantra for 10 years or whatever. And that's why we are where we are. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I agree with you, but you definitely gave me pause and I just kind of, you know, scratched my chin for a second and said, hmm. Uh, obviously you're extremely successful in those circuits. You do very well on on the Star City Tour and have been for quite some time now. So your approach is paying dividends. It's just not something I ever really considered before. I never thought about tailoring the shape of my deck to the perceived skill level of the tournament. I'm just like, I'm a find the best deck guy. And I think Jerry kind of is too. Like the best deck is the best deck regardless of who you're playing against. Is that fair to just describe your approach that way, Jerry? No, I, I was basically never doing that. You were you were tailoring your decks towards the skill level of your opponents? Oh, yeah. Wow. So I just missed the boat on this one, huh? <laughs> I've been sitting here trying to just play what I perceive as the best deck in SCGs. And maybe this is why I have no SCG success whatsoever. You guys might have just leveled me up big time. Well, I think that I think that these decks are like not as it's not like they're only good when your opponents are not good. It's more like they're less good when your opponents are really, really, really good. I think is the better way to explain what's going on. Like most players are gonna fall for this like Oh, do am I leaving up company or Ojitai's command thing? Pro Tour players are going to build their deck in such a way that they don't fall into that trap. And that's like why I wasn't about to play like Glimmer of Genius Settle the Wreckage at this tournament. And I like said that to everyone who would like listen. I screamed it from the rooftops. I was like, I'm terrified to play untapped mana decks at this tournament because they're going to tax your Glimmer turns perfectly. And never walk into your three mana turns where you have Disallow and always walk into your turns where they're going to make you cast Syncopate for one instead of Glimmer and waste two mana. And each or successive turn, they'll do a similar thing to like maximize their equity and minimize yours or whatever, you know? This might be a, a future show topic, I think. Yeah, I, re I really want to talk about this more. Yeah, we're probably getting too deep. It's super fascinating. It's, and like I said, it's not really where my game has lied in the past. So I, I would like to come back to this. We should definitely circle back around. That's game, daddy. <laughs>